0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. This episode, I'm speaking to Mr. Hugh Burton. Mr. Burton, why don't you tell us who you are?
1: How are you? My name is Hugh Burton. Um, I am a native of the Bronx. (laughs) Um, I was wrongfully arrested and charged with second-degree murder. I'm an exoneree. Um, I did 20 years. Uh, I came home in 2009, um, still committed to finding people to uh, get themselves interested in my, my case of innocence. Um, I spent the next 10 years uh, fighting and with the help of uh, three different law clinics, finally in 2019, after 30 years, um, I was exonerated by the Bronx.
0: That's just a disgusting amount of time to to deal with things like that. Mm-hmm. Can you, I guess I'll let you explain what took place and, and when it all started?
1: So when, when this all started, this was uh, January 3rd, 1989. Um, I was a 16 year old, um, high school sophomore, uh, in the Bronx. My mom, uh, was a registered nurse. My dad was, he had his own business. Um, he was an interior exterior decorator. And, um, uh, my dad was on his, uh, vacation going back to Jamaica. They had had a, I think a hurricane some months before that in late 88. And, uh, he was going home to check on his mom. My mother was starting a two-week vacation. She was a registered nurse. It was my first day back to school after the holiday break. Um, again, it was, it was January 3rd. The day started out as normal as any other. Uh, my mom got me up. I you know, got myself together for school. I ate. Uh, we joked about making this semester a better semester. Um, and I left. I left her sitting on the couch and I went to school. I, uh, returned from school maybe, uh, two, two forty, maybe a quarter three, somewhere thereabout. And, um, I noticed that when I got into the house, the car, her car wasn't there. So knowing that she just started a vacation, I assumed that she, you know, she was out shopping or just running some errands. So, I came into the house. As I'm coming to the house, we owned a three-family private home. We lived on the second floor. So as I'm coming up to the second floor, I can hear our telephone in the apartment ringing. So I quickly opened the door to the apartment. I grabbed the phone. It was a girlfriend of mine's at the time uh, who, you know, invited me over. So figuring, okay, well my mom is not home, I could go and then come back. She should be back. By the time I uh, get here, I left, walked right back out the house. I went over to my girlfriend's house. I stayed in and got back about 530. Noticing that the car was still gone, I said, well, she should be home any minute. I went into the house and this time, you know, began to take off my things and walk towards my bedroom and, you know, my parents' bedroom, my bedroom, the bathrooms, everything was towards the back of the apartment. I noticed that the master bedroom, my parents' bedroom, the door was open. And that was, you know, it was a little curious to me because we usually, when no one is in the house, kind of closed doors. I, it's just a habit we had. Uh, it made me go into the room. And when I went into the room, I found my mom. She had been stabbed to death. Um, I immediately grabbed for the phone. I'm screaming, but I grabbed for the phone to, Call the police. Um, but the phone that was in my parents' bedroom, when I picked it up, I noticed that the receiver and base, there was no cord there. Um, whoever whoever had done it had taken the telephone cord and bound her wrists. I ran out to the phone in the hallway and I called the police from there. Um, I couldn't stay in the house. I told them what I saw and I ran outside. Uh, once outside they didn't take long to come the you know the precinct wasn't far from my house and um they got there um things were just a blur at that moment but you know they're asking me um you know where i was for the day and i'm telling them everything and asking about family and they asked me if I noticed if anything was out of the ordinary or strange, anything that I could tell them. The um, only thing I've managed to tell them is that, listen, when I left, the car was here. our car is not here. Right. Um, so they bring me down to the precinct. As I said, my dad was in Jamaica, so I had to call him from the precinct to tell him what had happened. He got on a plane immediately to come back to the states. Um, they asked me if I, you know, if I had any anywhere to go. Um, I told him that I had a godmother who lived in Mount Vernon, which wasn't too far from where I lived in the Bronx. And um, they brought me there, and I stayed there. Um, I just pretty much laid in the bed. My dad got back the next day. I couldn't really eat. I didn't really sleep Um, on January 5th. The police officers called from the 47th precinct and said that they wanted to, told my godmother they wanted to bring me down for a polygraph test. I, again, couldn't keep any food down. I didn't really sleep. I didn't have any energy to do much of anything, but I wanted to know what happened to my mom, you know. And um, I went down and they told my godmother, you know, we'll bring him right back. So I got down to the precinct and, I, you know, sitting there for a while, um, there was no polygraph test administered. Um, they asked me to tell them again, you know, everything that I told them on the third, um, maybe about an hour or so, maybe two hours into um, this interview, they told me that they had evidence to, uh, that they believed that I wasn't in school and I said I was in school and um, that things that I was telling them just didn't add up. I'm um, at this point, I'm scared, I'm frightened, I'm asking for my dad. Um, they told me, you know, you'll, you'll get to speak to your father, but you know, you need to let us know what happened. And again, I'm terrified. I'm, you know, I had never been arrested. I'd never been even questioned by police before. I don't know this procedure. This is not familiar to me. Um, I can't so imagine.
0: I mean, I mean, yeah, Sorry, I mean, I'm starting to interrupt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm in there. I'm, I'm crying. And, um, again, just asking my my father, um, because it's the only, it's the only anchor that, that, you know, that I know. Um, so this goes on and, you know, finally with them telling me, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to tell us, you know, that, that you did this. We know you did this. You know, you committed this crime. Finally, they, uh, told me that, well, we know that, uh, you went to your girlfriend's house, as you said, we checked that out, but, um, you know, your girlfriend, Um, she was uh, going on 14 years old. And uh, I don't know if you know that, but that constitutes statutory rape. I had never heard the term before, but I know the term terrified um, and Anything they told me. Anything with
0: the word rape is rape associated then, you with you know, It's
1: terrifying. Is... You know, so it told me that if you don't tell us that, you know, that you committed this crime, um, not only are we going to arrest you and charge you with this crime, but we're also going to um, arrest you for statutory rape. And, you know, if you go to Rikers Island, you know, and you have a crime like statutory rape, you know, this is, that's not a good thing to be in there for. And you're going to be in there for, you know, for the murder of your mom. So, you know, but if you do tell us that, you know, you committed this because we know this was an accident, um, we'll make sure that you go to family court your dad can come and pick you up because they know the whole night out of um, After a while of doing this and making me feel as like this was the only option, like I was not going to leave this room unless I did this, um, they said, well, you know, um, we know, you know, you've never been in trouble before, you know, just just tell us this. So they got to a point where they... Actually got me to agree to that, and we began to construct this story and they're feeding me thing of what they feel are facts from what they saw in the case, and trying to put this confession together, which would best fit what they how they saw the uh, the crime scene and um after hours, they finally got this coerced confession out of me. Um, and got a video videotape confession as well. By this time, it was about 10 after 3 in the morning when this uh, videotape uh, confession started. Um, you can see that um, on my, uh, you know, if you ever get a chance to look at my videotape confession, it's, it's 10 after 3 in the morning.
0: And what time did they pick you up initially?
1: Uh, they picked me up about 5, 5.30, that you know, the afternoon before.
0: So you've been so, up all day. And then they coerce you down I, yeah, with, with a lie detector.
1: Right, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I really couldn't sleep. I didn't want, I really didn't want to get out of the bed to do anything. Um, but you know, in my mind, because of the rearing that my parents gave me, it's like, you know, anything that can be done to help them, uh, find out what happened here. Uh, i i you know i want to do it although i don't feel like moving um if it will help anything great all right i'll do it so i reluctantly you know went down there and um when they picked me up they knew what their intention was they knew what they were going to do um by the time they um extracted this uh you know uh, false confession and you know and had this videotape confession um, I'm still, I'm so naive. I'm still thinking I'm going to family court and in my mind, I'm saying, okay, when, when I get there, you know, I'll explain to so my dad that, daddy, they made me say this, that was the only way that I was going to get out of it. They weren't going to let me out of the room any other way. Um, I come out as a perp walk and there's every major newspaper and <laughs> news outlet in the city at the time. And, um, you know, Still being naive, you know. As I'm hearing uh, people hurl, hurling questions like, you know, well, why did you kill your mom? I'm, I'm, I'm still believing what they told me because I, you know, I wanted to believe what they were telling. Me. Right. And um, we got in the car and they're driving me from my neighborhood in the Bronx to Central Booking, in downtown Bronx. And um, you know, they happen to turn the radio on and I can hear Ten Ten Wins, and the same story that. I know that they just fed me and, you know, say, OK, well, we're going to help put this thing together is the same story. I hear the reporter on 1010 10 Wins uh, saying, and at this point, I'm saying, OK, well, this is something this is not good. Wow. You know, I'm still wanting to believe still being a 16 year old kid who has no knowledge of this kind of lifestyle. You know, you want to believe this and you're terrified. Um, you really don't know. You don't know what's up from down
0: and being um, mentally exhausted i mean
1: and i'm um, because i haven't even had a time i haven't had a chance to process what i saw what i saw was so fresh in my head just as it's as fresh in my head as a fourth uh, as a 48 year old man today um it was fresh in my head you know as a 16 year old child and um i didn't know you know up and down left from right um they would have if they told me to say anything inside that room just to feel like I could, you know, just to feel like, again. Yeah, I'm going to get out of here. I would have. Um, so I was arraigned and was charged with second degree murder, charged in, in the murder of my mom. Uh, my dad, not believing a, a word of it, um, exhausted his life savings um, and everything for defense for me and. um. For the 13 years that I had him after uh, this happened, um, every day, every waking day was about trying to find a way to help his son prove uh, he was innocent.
0: Your, um, your dad passed that, in 2009. That was the same year uh, that you were released. Did he pass before or after you were released?
1: Yeah, he uh, he passed in 2005.
0: Five, sorry.
1: Um, yeah, it was, it was 2005. And um, I remember seeing him in 2003. Uh, Some family had to bring him because he had sold. He had to sell the house that we had in the Bronx. He he could no longer manage it. Um, You know, um, just a sidebar about him for for a brief moment. Um, You know, he had to come back and deal with everything you know helping his son mount a defense uh you had to bury your wife you know you had to deal with the ridicule of people in the community you ostracized your your business was a business that was based on word of mouth and uh, quality of work um yeah. and all of that dried up so you know the amount of things that he had to go through um, just in all that time when the last time I saw him in two thousand and three um dementia had taken taken him so far that he was on the visit a family member brought him up because they had to bring him to the states his health wasn't well and they couldn't take care of him in jamaica so they decided to fly him up and they brought him up to see me but he didn't know who i was you know and um these kind of things it makes you say oh, you know what um they really did a bad thing here you know you really really did a bad thing to me and and my folks so um he gave everything, and he never got a chance to see him walk out of prison, Um, and let alone to see me, you know, the 10 years after that, um, still fighting and, you know, um, getting exonerated. Um, It was definitely, it was bittersweet because he wasn't there, but, um, you know, unnecessary nonetheless.
0: I I can't imagine, I can't even begin to, to try and fathom the horrificness of what you witnessed, being sleep deprived to, to try and put myself in that, that mind space that you were in at the time that they brought to the police officers brought you down to elicit this confession. It, it's, it, yeah. it, it's infuriating that you were clearly taken advantage of. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, um, I, you know, I, I used to look at it you know, when I was younger, you know, you, you, you can't help but to look at things, Um, from the perspective of a young person, it's the only thing you have to draw from. And, you know, when I was much younger in my teenage years, while all of this was going on and I'm fighting the case and what have you, I was, I would look at them, the officers in court at hearings and I'm watching them lie about how this confession came about because it was the only thing that, um, they had to say someone was was responsible, um, was this coerced confession. And I'm looking at them lying. They're looking at me like, "Yeah, we're lying, but it's our job." And as a, you know, as a young kid at the time, um, the only way I can process it was, "Why are you all doing this to me? Like, what, what did I do? What did I, what did I? Why are you all doing? You know that this is not true. Why are you doing this?" Um, as years went on, and um, you know, you mature, and you're in prison now um you you begin to look at things a little bit different and um i had to start to look at things as when i was became an adult in prison i had to look at things a lot different and um they had a problem they had to do what they did and the reason why they had to do what they did was this um Remember, the only thing that I could keep telling them was that, listen, I don't know where my mom's car is. When I left school this morning, her car was here. So, you know, I guess um, a search is put out for the car. It's in connection to a murder. I think that's the natural thing to do. Um, on the day of my mom's funeral, um, interesting thing, two, two interesting things happened. Um, I was indicted, and they found her car. Um, So when the arresting officers in my case, they were informed that, hey, that car, we we found it, that 88 Honda Accord. So they immediately went up to the Mount Vernon Police Department to see who was in possession of this car so they can really tie this thing up to their horror it was our downstairs tenant who had been in possession of the car and who had been in possession of the car since the 3rd. Someone whom they had questioned on the 3rd and deemed to be someone who was irrelevant to the case. But you have this coerced confession from this child who was all over the news who you say told you after you were satisfied with his questioning that wait had a, a stroke of you know, consciousness, and said, "Wait, I need to tell you, fellas, something." And gave you this elaborate confession.
0: Yeah, I mean, that you had a problem. If you have somebody that that's found in a vehicle, I mean, and from what you were saying, again, I'm I'm looking at this from a completely outside perspective. I'm not in the moment of anything, but yeah. like, right, you're, you're coming from a background of law enforcement. You know, right. I, I did investigate things to a certain degree, mm-hmm. not to the extent that detectives do, um, strictly yeah. as a patrolman. So it's, it's very beginner of the investigation, but it's crucial. My understanding is it's, it's crucial to get things right and to get the right information so the right. detectives have a better footing to go off of when they are investigating. And, mm. f- again, from my perspective, if you have somebody who's giving you pretty legitimately seemingly truthful information from what you were saying. And then mm-hmm. you have a vehicle that's involved that's missing and you find somebody in it. I mean, generally there's, there's a big question mark of how'd you get the car? Why do you have the car? And, and you, you kind of start looking at that direction and then right. you take the totality of everything that you went through from the day that you found your mother into the day that you, well, in the morning, that you gave this clearly, probably worked over um, confession. It,
1: it, they we were we worked over that confession so much that by the time they turned on a camera, um, for the con, you know to say okay well you know say what you you know well we you know not what we went over but okay well you know say it to the camera. I'd gone over it so much; it was almost, you know, I could just go because we had been yeah. going over it and over it. And they made me feel like, "Listen, you have to get this right. This is the only way that you're going to get to family court, and your dad is going to be able to pick you up. Otherwise, all of this other stuff."
0: There's there's is things that, you know, kind of doing a little research into you and, and your case that that just it perked up as as really questionable. The, the fact that they wouldn't let you talk to your father throughout any of the time that they had you. I mean, from the research that I did, they, what was the law with, with dealing with juveniles and, and interrogations in New York around 1989?
1: Uh, there, That's, that's, that's the thing. You asked what were the laws at the time. Um, I'm saying that, there were not any, um, and one of the things that I always say, one of the talking points that I always say, not to tether myself to it, but just to just to show uh, the temperament of the time. Um, they arrested me um, and charged me on January fifth, January sixth, nineteen eighty nine. On January on April nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, they arrested five young men in a park. And the style of the coerced confession was exactly similar, with slight differences.
0: So it sounds like mind. they had a system.
1: There was a system in place. And these are cases that happened to be sensationalized. And somebody said, hey, wait a minute, let me take a look at this. If no one said, hey, let me take a look at this, no, we would not be hearing about an exonerated five or a Hugh Burton. There are so many other people who were just like that, um, where there are questionable circumstances. But in you know these two cases, these two cases highlighted the temperament of the time. The arresting officers, in my case, uh, also did this same uh, show to uh, two to three other people that we know of in a couple of months prior to my mom being murdered. These same officers have done this. This is not something new to them. I wasn't the, I wasn't their first time at the rodeo. So my thing is, it was a temperament of the time. Um, and to further show that it was a temperament of the time, everybody rose in rank as a result of their practices in my case and certainly what has been documented and shown in the exonerated five case that a lot of people who have been in, um, involved in that went on to do other things as a result of that. I think so, yeah.
0: when, when people speak of, you know, systemic problems in, in law mm-hmm. enforcement, I, I think part of, or one of the components of that is failure of supervisors to properly handle Infractions, and I think part mm-hmm. of it is because that supervisor sees it as a negative on them that that particular officer did whatever mm-hmm. the infraction was, and rather than seeing it as a as a moment to shine and, and show and, and be accountable, mm-hmm. they kind of do what they can to manipulate it, and then you foster that. And there's also the, the human component of, and I'm, I'm not, I, I wish I it wasn't as prevalent as it seems to be in law enforcement, that there's this desire to end and to to end the case and, and, and win. And, and in my opinion, and from my perspective, tying up a case and finishing a case and closing a case, it's not about winning, it's about finding the objective truth in a situation. And clearly that's, that's not the case with you. I mean, you were charged on January 1st of 1989, mm-hmm. and you weren't convicted until september 25th of 91 so you're were you constantly in and out of court for that amount of time or is it just because you kind of got tied up in the new york court system i know that that typically Uh, drags things out a lot as well
1: well well at, at the time um new york new york's uh judicial system was moving them in and moving them out um From 1989 and, you know, until about 94 or shortly thereafter, New York's prison population swelled like portions that are like unbelievable to look at. Um, But with me, they knew that they had a problem because in this case, there was an alternate suspect um and they had to account for a lot of things um a lot of things in that confession that they thought were details that made sense to them from there just looking at ass- assessing the scene and that they said okay well we are going to put that in there when certain things were done it was like that's impossible for that to have happened um like they had me say like this was just uh one one stab wound that was straight through. And once they caught um the tenant downstairs, they kinda had him fashion a story that still implicated me, but only implicated him minimally to explain the car. But he ended up saying the same thing about this uh uh the stab wound, but Medical examiner reports, uh, shows that no, that there were, you know, two, uh, different wounds, not one continuous wound as they thought they saw, but this is what they fed me. And once they caught him in the car, they had to work him into it somehow, but not hold him, uh, responsible for murder. So they worked him in and he was only charged with grand larceny, uh, even though he was on parole, uh. For, for for uh robbery and rape you know um
0: so he had a history of, of violent crime yeah
1: he, yeah he had a yeah he had a violent history and what we what we learned later is that he also had um a mental he had a, a strong mental uh, history as well um where you know it's it was documented but all of these things were kind of sealed and those who did know it was a concerted effort to make sure that the defense uh, never knew any of this stuff. Um, you know, there were even incidents of a previous landlord and there, you know, there was tension there. Um, so this is, wasn't the first time that they were doing this. Uh, he was already in prison for uh, a, a, a raping a, a young woman in Westchester. Um, there was also a knife point robbery in Times Square. So this is all before he got to renting an apartment from the Burtons at the age of twenty two.
0: So that's I mean so, it shows the history of violence with him.
1: Right, exactly. So, you know, their 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 thing was, okay, we really have a problem because we know we made this sixteen year old child say he did these things.
0: And God forbid they never, walk that back because it's, you know, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it would make them look bad.
1: Right. And then you and then you you're going to have to you'll be forced to answer. What did you do to him to make him say he did something like that? Or why would you know, what did you do? Um, so before people would have to answer that, uh, they decided, no, we're going to double down on this. Um, but I don't think that they anticipated that um, I had a great great people um in my corner from the outset uh namely in my uh, father and in my defense attorney um up until the day my defense attorney died um he was um, committed to getting this case heard again and um you know my attorney was William Consular and um you know my 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 dad said he didn't want to spare any expense you know in terms of getting a a defense attorney so he got away from counseling and once uh, Mr. Kunstler learned uh, all of the specifics of the case and seeing what was going on he was he was all on board um, even after we lost that trial um, he told my father, you know I'm not charging you for the appeals um, this is not supposed to be."
0: so he um, saw, he saw the errors in it out of the gate and all the holes in their, in their story huh? he saw yeah, the holes and he- everything.
1: Yeah, he knew, he was, William Kunstler was so far ahead of the curve. Um, Everything that we learned 28 years later, uh, Mr. Kunstler was saying then, and um, the prosecution was not turning over all of the Brady that proved everything that he was saying. And, um, you know, this is one of the things that pains me and motivates me at the same time, you you know. But um, he was so he was so far ahead of the curve. He knew, he knew these things. And thankfully, um, all of his work, I I guess what they would call him is the breadcrumbs, um, that were left back in the late eighties and early nineties by Mr. Kunstler. Um, the three law clinics that, um, got on board with this case that eventually brought it to 2019. Um, they all started from breadcrumbs left by the, uh, the, the, the late great William Cunnsley, you know, so.
0: <laughs> in your, uh, yeah. in your case, he, he tried to bring a, an expert to dispute the confession. Was that because he was trying to dispute the, some of the facts that he was saw in there or that the tactics and, you know, the way he, of being able to see talk to your talking father did.
1: stuff. He did. He knew enough of, you know, at the time, uh, it was. Remember, it was 1989. Um, most people couldn't fathom why someone would confess to doing something that they didn't do, let alone something of this nature. Um, hell, we still have a hard time wrapping our minds around that 2020. So he got a uh, expert, uh, and it was agreed to that. Okay, yeah, you can bring an expert testimony in here. You know, to uh, question uh, the, the validity of the mindset and and you know the confession and things like that. So this doctor, Dr. Joel Feiner, um, he came to visit me when I was on Rikers Island, and I don't remember the extent of the conversation. I was I, I wasn't even quite 17 years old at the time and uh i know what i do know is that when he left there he says um i was supposed to do some other things but i'm going to your house to go see your father i'm gonna call him when i'm leaving here and um he left he called my father and he went to the house and he you know looked at uh you know how he lived he guess he went into my, my dad told me that he brought him around the house and he ended up writing this mm-hmm. um I, I guess his motion or what he thought on it, and he was like, "This, this, this child, he didn't kill his mom, and you know, this, this is a coerced confession." They didn't allow him to testify, mm-hmm. um, and I forget exactly why they cited uh, why he would not be allowed to testify uh, in front of a jury. Um, so he was excluded, but it's the same platform of things that a whole science is built around now and um you know we, we look to it and it, as a position of you know weighing whether or not confessions were, were coerced, coerced or not so um you know william kunstler was definitely uh, someone i was like you uh, know just just ahead of the curve um and I appreciate that because a lot of things that he unearthed with the case early on, or as I said, breadcrumbs for those who uh, took an interest in the case years later.
0: You were on Rikers at a quite a young age, and Rikers is pretty well known for being, a, well, to put it lightly, a horrific place for anybody. Yeah. Did you serve your entire uh, sentence on Rikers?
1: No, that's a very good question, too. Um, no, no. Um, for the first 23 months um, I was on Rikers Island. Um, my dad, you know, working tirelessly, so my probably phone was trying to find out. Uh, Finally, there was a way made that allowed to put up our home. From the way that the home was secured, it was something that well, was not done at the time. And I remember Mr. Counselor being very uh, happy that this happened because people versus Burton in terms of uh, bail cases became law. So my dad secured my bail um, December 7th, 1990, after 23 months. Um, I was out on bail nine months and um, went to trial from out from home. And then September 91 is um, when I lost um, a trial on the 25th.
0: So, um. Did you go back to Rikers or did they sent you to a I, different facility? Yeah I,
1: went, yeah, I went back to Rikers. They remanded me immediately. Um, so they took me, they took me back in, and, um, Mr. Consul had filed a motion while I was down there. So I think I stayed an extra five months waiting for, um, that a decision on that motion. Finally, in uh, February of 92, they denied the motion um, and I was sentenced to 15 years to life. I got upstate, uh, I believe the 13th, somewhere there, about 13th of February of uh, 1992, where I stayed um, in upstate New York in various different facilities until September 2009.
0: And that's when you were paroled?
1: And that's when, yeah, that's when I was paroled. And, um, you know, I got back out here and, um, you know, just struggling to just try to, you know, you really make a way for yourself. I came home at the height of the recession. It was 09. Um, The bottom had already fallen out. Um, People really didn't know. Uh, what to do. Uh, um, I don't think anybody had ever really seen anything like that before. So um, things were pretty rough. But, you know, I stayed the course, knowing that um, it wasn't just about coming home and, you know, finding a job and surviving, that there was still a fight uh, to be had. Um, So, you know, I worked in construction for the next Nine years uh, as an elevator mechanic, still fighting this case. And, you know, and all, finally, like I said, when I got exonerated, I kind of uh, left the elevator business alone. So,
0: <laughs> so you spent essentially half of your life in prison, and in that half of your life, it's it's kind of the most formative part yeah. of your life, where you're you're finishing <laughs> high school, you're learning skills, you're learning trades you know, some people go to high school or go to college or or in the military. They, they find ways to really make something of their lives. And, and you, you were deprived of that. I mean, did, did you use your time there to, you know, develop any skills that you would have hoped that would have helped you out when you got out?
1: You know, um, <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm, I'm so thankful, uh, of some of the guys that I did manage to meet. Um, as i after I was in there for a while, um, you know, some never really discussed it. Um, but prisoners, as you can obviously tell, is a very small community. So everybody pretty much knows, you know, what people are there for and, you know, people get an opportunity to read your demeanor and what have you. So, um, I wasn't judged a lot, uh, by that, but I was thankful to be around a lot of those guys who encouraged me to, um, do more than just uh sit in the yard and do push-ups or something like that like really do something else with yourself um you don't know how long you're going to be here um so try to do something to develop as a person and i think um at that time in the early 90s late 80s um the mindset was you know this is very these are very very bad conditions but I think people were pretty much of the mindset of I'm not going to allow the conditions to define uh, who I am. So when they would see a lot of us young guys in the yard, 21, 22, 23 years old, we have a lot of time, but you can still see that they have their life ahead of them, whatever whatever that's worth. Um, So, you know i went to college while i was in there um i did different trades i was on um, the licensed asbestos handler while i was there i did upholstery um i did plumbing and heating um you know i did there are a few there are a lot of different things that i've done um and you know you try to translate a lot of these different things skills when you come home um but again i'm just thankful for some of the older guys who were there um, who saw me and said, you know, we just can't allow him to just do time. So they always encouraged me to do different things. Um, sadly, prison is reverting back to the way things were um, long, a long, long time ago, even before I got there, where that's not the flavor of the day, for lack of a better word. It's not encouraged for you to better yourself. You know? So,
0: I, I read that that's kind of where you started to run,
1: that is exactly where I started to run. I didn't, I, I never thought I had uh, that kind of stuff in me because, you know, when I was out here before all of this happened, um, athletics were never really my thing. Um, music, I, you know, I, I did take that from my dad. Um, he was a sax player. So my love of music and my appreciation and the standard of music, that's where my thing was. It wasn't until prison that I realized, oh, wow, you know, you are a bit athletic and I would see older guys running and it seemed like they didn't have, it wasn't a care in the world and I knew that some of these guys had 20 years in, 25 years in and I mean they're just running, they just look look free, you know what I mean Um, and I know they have pains and frustrations and they're angry, but those moments that they're running, those moments I didn't see that and even in my young mind in my early twenties, I wanted that. Um, I never knew what that was, but I knew it. I knew what I was looking at. And I, you know, I tried running. I couldn't get around the yard twice. I didn't realize you just can't get out there and run. No, there's an (laughs) art to running. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: I couldn't get around the quarter mile track twice, but you know, I'm being determined and that type of a person. I, I kept at it. And, um, somebody, uh, saw me struggling and you know would give me a few tips and then i realized that i started to enjoy it and and enjoying it i found that i started to use it to clear my head if i had anything that was on my mind you know um watching the sacrifices my dad is making so instead of sitting in my cell and just you know stewing over that i would come out i'd just run just just run till, till i'm tired to the point where the running actually became this thing um where it's like your release is your freedom and I, I didn't know that that's what was happening um the same thing with the music but you know um, I was growing at the same pace musically ironically you know it, it was encouraged to you know learn to play an instrument so um, I was doing that but that with the running um, that became um, my things of freedom and um, you know just doing that, I wasn't expecting to get, a, you know, pretty good at it. So now instead of saying, I'm going to run a couple laps, now I'm coming out to the yard and say, oh, you know what, I'm going to run seven miles today. You know? I don't feel that. I'm just going to do seven. And I was like, how arrogant of you. You couldn't run around two two <laughs> times around the yard a few months ago, you know? So um, so that's, you know, that's pretty much what it was for me. And I I kept doing it. And um, i managed to encourage guys who now, um, are in their early twenties and now I'm in my mid thirties and now they're, I, they're calling me the old timer I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, so, um, but they like the fact that I'm still out there running and they want to learn how to run just like I wanted to learn when I was in my early twenties. So,
0: um, it was interesting. So when you got out, you said you, you started working for an elevator company, um, mm-hmm. I'm guessing still running while you were doing that. Cause you, yeah, you clearly kept yeah. up your stamina because you ran the New York city marathon last year, which is exactly. just mind blowing to me for somebody who I, I never well, was know, a fan of running. <laughs>
1: Hilarious. But you know what? Um, I think what it was, uh, and, and this is for anybody that, uh, knows about elevator, uh, mechanic work. Um, if you do elevator mechanic work in terms of building an elevator, Um, that is all, that is really all the exercise you need.
0: (laughs) Um, I I can attest to that. I mean, I've worked in an elevator shaft a a few times myself. Um,
1: All right. So you know exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) so, you know, you know, when you hoisting those 16 foot rails up, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. So, (laughs) you know, that kind of kept my, um, that kept my stamina up, um, working hard like that. I was working overtime, so I was really only getting a chance to run on the weekends So um, a lot of times I would run um, up and down the West Side Highway. Um, And once I started marking out miles like that, I said, "Okay, well, you know what? I'll just use this. I'll use my weekends for training for the marathon. So the first one I did was in 2016, Um, you know, and I think the first one I did was just for all the smack that I talked while I was inside watching marathons <laughs> on channel seven say, you know what, when? And if I get out of here, I'm going to run a marathon. And it's like, okay, well you're out now. Now and you got to be held accountable for what you said. So, <laughs> Yeah, with all of that, I, I you know, I had to come out and, and run the marathon, so um, I actually uh, spoke to some people who were like, you know, okay, well, you know, we think we can get you in, um, so I got in, I remember volunteering for, um, you know, some races, and you know, to get points and stuff like that, and I, I got in, and um, I ran, and it was, um it felt good, because I knew that just uh, a couple years prior to that, I was saying, you know, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to run this, and here it is, um. I'm, I'm i'm running i'm i'm about to enter central park you know um so that was great um the next time i ran was um in 2019 and um i think it was very very personal um i just got exonerated so the the, the race kind of for me was like i'm gonna take a victory lap around this city yeah you, you took so much from me you know what i mean there's, so, there's
0: definitely some good symbolism with that one there
1: um yeah, that that this, this this last one, I really wasn't even concerned with time. I mean, I'm jogging, I'm seeing people. I know I'm stopping. we let's let's take pictures and let's have you know. But it, it, for me, it was like, let's really run around the city and um, let's really enjoy it. Without all of the burdens that uh, were placed on me as a child, you know what I mean. So yeah, um,
0: yeah. So you spent from 2009 to 2019 fighting the initial conviction, correct? Yes, and then you finally got in touch with a was it the Innocence Project that came to you, or, or did somebody refer you to the Innocence Project?
1: Oh no! So actually, um, I had uh, I had been writing um, different organizations for quite some time while I got home, and um, I think uh, about. 2007 about yeah about 2006 2007 i remember writing the innocence project um you know anybody that i would get to listen you know like well this is my case this is what happened you know i didn't do this and so on and so forth sometimes i would get answers sometimes i wouldn't but um it was like you know we're going to keep going um the innocence project answered one letter back um and told me that you know they only deal with issues at this point of, you know, issues that have DNA and, you know, your case is not a, uh, a case that has issues of DNA. Um, what they did, I don't know who was who that was at intake at the time. They forwarded my um, case to Northwestern, um, a law clinic that kind of dealt with uh, confessions, especially confessions of adolescence. Um, they got the case, they looked at it, and it was like, wait a minute, this kind of looks, this looks classic of, you know, con- confession coercion. So um, they had gotten in contact with me. I'm still serving. Uh, you know, it's like 2008. Um, I, At the time, I was just writing. I wasn't expecting much. I wasn't expecting people to say, okay, cool, we're going to take it, because everybody kind of did the same thing. And, you know, when, he kinda, when it came time to really buckled down to where, you know, people went their way. So they said, we're not saying we're going to take the case, but we're going to take a look at it. Um, then he took a look and they said, well, you know, um, if, you know, you're about to go to uh, parole, if you, you know, you get released, you can call us and let us know if you want to continue. As soon as I got released at uh, that next uh, parole board, that was the first thing that I did uh, was get in contact with uh, those two law clinics, in 2009 and said, look, um, no, I want to fight. This is, you know, what they did isn't right. And this is not sitting well with me. So, um, we, we started and, um, we worked all the way up until 2016. We gathered everything that we could and, you know, we couldn't go anymore and they reached out to the innocence project again to say, you know, this is where we're at. This is what we have. Um, we could use more help the Innocence Project got on board in 2016 and um things really sped up and um really you yeah. know, got fast-tracked and um by 2019 um we had you know gotten this case um uh, looked at and, and overturned and also um this definitely not, this would not have happened um if it would not been for uh, the Bronx uh, Conviction Integrity Unit you know um because it had to be somebody to say, okay, well, let's sit and let's listen and let's let's see um, what's happening. So um, they they understood uh, what happened and and, and were willing to acknowledge the mistakes that were made. Um, So, you know, it was a collaborative effort of. So many, so many different people um, to make this happen. The only thing that I did was stay sane and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> given, you know?
0: given what you were put through for the thirty years prior to your exoneration, that's that's a a monumental task, <laughs> <laughs> and you deserve to be oh, cool. absolutely commended for it. Yeah, I kind of mentioned before um, the one characteristic that I've noticed from a lot of the, the exonerees from watching the Innocence Files mm-hmm. and, and reading up on. The project and, and the people that they've represented, there's this, this sense of peace and a sense of calm about their demeanor. That's, it, yeah. it's 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 breathtaking of, of how being treated so horrifically for so long. And a lot of these people that are at least the ones that are being exemplified on the Netflix special is, you know, they're in there for well over twenty years. And and your whole ordeal mm-hmm. was was thirty years long and. It's Mm -hmm. just to, to see people that have been really beaten down and unjustly beaten down and still have this bright light of life about them. And when they talk this energy, it's, it's, it's pretty astounding. You know, here is the thing. If they don't,
1: if we don't have that, you never make it through. Deal. That's 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 the funny part. It's like you know, people uh, a lot of times they look at how, like, you know, wow, that's amazing that you know you were able to go through that and to withstand that and still have that spirit where you know you you don't have this bitterness. Um, it's it's really it's something that is you you, you you're trained into, but you know you're really you're really appreciating everything and i think as we were talking about earlier um when you're in there for those long periods of time and your freedoms have been taken away from you you learn to really appreciate these small things in life um so you may notice sometimes where the, the person who is the exonerated, or just a person out of prison, that, that their manners are, are through the roof, and it's like, why are you trying to be so overly? Like, no, that's just how they are. You know, you you start to appreciate a lot of um, small things that people just take for granted who are going about their life day to day. Um, so you never, you know, you don't you don't you don't lose sight of that, and um, it shows when you deal with people when you, um, when you come out here, it's something I hear about, uh, other exonerees. Or it's something that I have heard about myself. Um, but like I said, I, I really believe it's from, um, conditioning and everything that one goes through while they're in there.
0: You, um, you said that you stopped doing the elevator work. What are you doing aside from wanting to keep yourself busy?
1: Um, well, you know, what I've been doing is, um, really a lot of, um, speaking to uh, whatever audiences I can get in front of, um, to bring awareness to, uh, what has happened to me, um, to bring awareness to what has happened to so many others, um, and to hopefully get people to hold those accountable who say, okay, it is their job to uphold law or interpret law, um, people have to be held accountable. So I, since I've left the, um, elevator industry, I've pretty much just been, um, doing that for the first year after my exoneration, I was volunteering um, at a risk at like youth who are at risk, uh, call fortune society. And they had a music program over there. So, um, I would go over there and help, um, with their music program and things that they had like that. So I did that for a while, but, um, Pretty much it's just talking to people and, and, and you know, informing people about what has happened and what what continues to happen,
0: so But uh what instrument do you currently play, if any at all? Um, keyboards. <laughs> nice. Um I've taken up about an hour of your time and I wanna thank you deeply for allowing me to Chat with you for a little bit and to tell me your story because it's it's truly a phenomenal story, um, in yeah, in horrificness and and like I said the the brightness that you're that you're showing. um, Do you have any thing you want to plug any anywhere people can can meet you or talk to you, um, engage with
1: well, you? Well, you know, really the only thing I have is it's really just like a, a Facebook. It's just Hugh Burton on Facebook and as a fan page. I love. um, talking to people there um but you know i'm i haven't really embraced uh the social media the way i i should have uh but <laughs> um I, I don't know i'm from i'm from a different new york at a different time a lot of it is weird to me
0: <laughs> it's, it's weird to uh, me too and i grew up with
1: okay it, so. <laughs> okay <laughs> so you you know you know exactly Facebook, it's it's just Hugh Burton on Facebook. Um, listen, I I love talking to people. I love um hearing uh, other people's views and, and and things like that. And you know, for me, it's to let people know. Listen, this uh prison reform thing and all of this, all of these are hashtags now. Um, because it's politically correct to, you know, deal with it or, or address that. Long after the lights go off and all of that stuff that these issues are going to remain, we need the people who are going to stay to us long after this is no longer vogue to uh, talk about.
0: I, so, I think you that's, know, um, that's a perfect point, and, and it's kind of something that I've noticed is a lot of people that are being vocal about things, they're, they're vocal to be, yeah. for the sake of being vocal they're not really mm-hmm. trying to put out any solutions. I'm mm-hmm. the type of person that I, if I see a problem, I want to see a, I want to come to a solution to, to fix exactly. The problem.
1: And, and you know something, and something that's important. And I think one of the things that people forget is that that's something that crosses uh, uh, ethnic lines. That's not something that is ascribed to one group. You know what I mean? That's things that people just do. And it's like you know, um, until we, until we fix that until we, you know, until we solve that. It's like, you know, don't be the person that's just talking about it because it's the thing to do in the moment. Um, there are still people's lives that are hanging in the balance, you know. So um, we have, we really have to do better. We can't just talk about it in nature. Um, like sometimes they give me opportunities to to uh, interns who are becoming attorneys or people who have aspirations of law. And it's like I feel duty bound to make sure that you give them something so they don't become some of the people who did what they did to me. You have an opportunity to plant a seed now, (laughs) you know? Yeah. um, Yeah, man. So that's, that's where we're at.
0: (laughs) Well, again, I I greatly appreciate your time. Um, I would definitely love to stay in touch and uh, I will let you go. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You as well. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon and send us feedback and show ideas and podcasts at addingcontext.com.